And hello, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday Night's Narrative. It's good to be with you tonight. I'm Zev Shalev, and here's Heidi Kuda in LA. How are you, Heidi? I'm doing great. I'm so excited about tonight's guest. It's going to be amazing. And I will be checking the Twitter chat for questions. You surely will. There'll be a lot of interesting comments there because we know how invested our audience is in the topic of Trump Russia. And that is what we're talking about today. We have a fancy title called Decloaking Derry Pasca because we want to be smart about these things. But it's also just a story about is Trump Russia back in the limelight? Are we seeing the beginnings of a crackdown, a takedown of the principles involved in Trump Russia? We've certainly seen it a lot of activity this week with Bannon, with Derry Pasca, the searches on his homes, and many other moves. We'll go through those in just a few minutes. Our guests tonight are fantastic. Craig Unger of the book uh, American Compromat is here, a terrific scholar, as you know, of everything Trump Russia, and he's a former guest on the show. And Jack Bryan is here from uh, the movie Active Measures and also the podcast The Kremlin Files. So that'll take us all the way through till about eight o'clock. We might have a surprise guest or two joining us tonight. And we definitely want to hear your opinions. So please join us on the chat and uh, make sure we know if you have any important questions or if you want to correct or add any facts, any facts to our reporting. But first, let's do these. What's in hey. the starting block today? We've got uh, three faces oh, in this. One of them I recognize. Exciting. Yes. yes, we have a, a fundraiser for Trump, Carolyn Wren. We have a GOP rep, Jeffrey Fortenberry, earning his street cred. And we have uh, the famous Mark Zuckerberg. All right. Let's start off with <laughs> number one, Carolyn Wren. I, I know that name, actually, to be honest. I mean, I've certainly done a little bit of research with her. What's going on with her? Well, it's interesting. ProPublica just came out with a story. Uh, she's essentially a fundraiser for Trump, former campaigner who raised funds for the seditionists, which does not seem like uh, that should be legal, but that's according to ProPublica what exactly happened. Yeah, she was and I think, a... I think you know her. Well, I don't know her personally, but I know she was a campaign director or uh, something like a campaign director for the Trump campaign, and then seamlessly moved over to the Stop the Steal event or campaign. She was suddenly became the chief organizer on the main event application. So it's interesting because she's a very well-known bundler. I mean, she, she certainly uh, operates in the high-stakes world of Ohio, which would be an indicator of the kind of people that she gets money from. Some people are perhaps linked to organized crime. Some of them with the first letter of a last name, W, for example, uh, might be among the donors who give to her bundler. And that's how she gets a lot of the money funneled into the GOP. She's also formerly the Fox News uh, anchor, Kim Guilfoyle. The, is she still the girlfriend of Donald Trump Jr.? I don't know if she is. I or believe isn't. she is. Yes. But if she still is, she was also um, Carolyn Wren's boss for a period of time. So that's how we know Carolyn. It's interesting that ProPublica have uh, zeroed in on this $3 million number because it's, that number seems to be the number that came out of the Trump campaign. It seems like maybe they took all the money that they had left over from the election that they really lost and they sort of took it over and you know pushed it over into the Stop the Steal event so they can fund an insurrection. That would be illegal, I would think. That would qualify as being somewhat that illegal. Would, um, I have confirmed <laughs> with our legal experts yeah. that that would indeed be illegal. So, you know, Carolyn Wren, I'm sure, is used to a very fine lifestyle. I'm not sure she's going to be excited about the prospects of any jail time in her future. So she might be interesting to, to bring over into the committees, as I know she will be finally asked to testify. And it will be interesting to see what she has to say about how the money was spent, where it came from, and uh, also why she chose to fund an insurrection, which will be interesting. So that's uh, story number one in our news tonight. And then another big story, this guy. Jeffrey Fortenberry, Fortenberry he's, uh, 
a congressman from Nebraska who nobody heard of until yesterday when the oh, FBI no. <laughs> basically, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's essentially under investigation for taking money from a foreign national. Right. And this, again, takes us back to 2016, because that same era that gave us Donald Trump, you also had a lot of foreign money slushing around the representative campaign. So Mr. Fortenberry was amongst the people who decided to take money from a Lebanese businessman. They're always Lebanese businessmen, who was also a middleman. The actual money came from a Nigerian billionaire currently living in Paris, who's found his way to decided to, to fund this Nebraska congressman campaign to the tune of $30,000. Now, that's all interesting. Fortenberry has decided to fight these charges. He's not cooperating with the cops, which is kind of dumb because they probably know what you did already, and they probably have all the information, but he's decided not to do it. Maybe the reason is that there are at least three other congressmen, a Republican congressman who are involved in the same scheme. Now, we don't know who the three are. But we may soon find out who the three are because, you know, they know what you did, guys. So it's going to be a tough year for the Republican Party in the House as they try to figure out how to get away from these very difficult campaigns um, and these allegations that they were funded by foreign entities. Yeah, right. to me, I look at these guys like uh, the actresses with their sex tapes. You know, as soon as they lie to the FBI, suddenly they become famous. It seems to be like a bad boy strain that's coming through the GOP. And yeah, you know, it's kind of a dumb yeah. move though. You got to admit, it's not the kind of thing you want to do, right? At the end of the day, this is not a career, uh, but you know, enhancing move for Mr. Fortenberry. We'll see what happens with him. You never know; it might be good for him. Depends what happens in the next elections. All right. Finally, trouble on the horizon. That is apparently the new name of Facebook. We'll find out next week. Maybe it's not quite the new name. It's maybe it's inspired by Horizon. Mark Zuckerberg is turning his attention from you know destroying our social fabric and then destroying our uh, cell phones or our smartphones. He's now going to destroy our actual reality and create a metaverse, meaning he's going to create an alternative universe. So when we look around our dystopic reality, which he and his company have helped create, we'll want to quickly turn to him for uh, some relief in the metaverse. That is the point behind the horizon, but that isn't the trouble that's on the horizon. The trouble on the horizon is that he is personally being named in a lawsuit that the Attorney General of Washington, uh, D.C. Yes, is, yes, is, uh, is suing him because he lied about Cambridge Analytica. He did know what was going on in Cambridge Analytica and he helped cover it up. We've reported that before, but it's interesting that the AG has now actually named Mark Zuckerberg in that suit. And that's going to be an expensive suit when it finally gets uh, resolved. There'll be many billions of dollars that need to be paid off for that. And it'll be interesting to see how Mark does when he has to uh, account for all of this in front of a judge. That's absolutely right. We have more. We, here. we do. We oh, do. I, so think, I think you're on a roll, Zev. I think you're on oh. a roll. You what do, what do you want to do? Oh, yeah. We've got to do something about the GOP voting block. I think Voting so. rights. It's just something about this. So we, the, the Republican Party are not interested in democracy. We know that. And now they've proven it. So there we go. Joe Manchin is a disaster, a walking disaster, I think. There's a report today in the Mother Jones saying that he is planning to leave the Democratic Party, that he no longer sees himself fitting into the party. That's probably accurate from everyone's perspective, but you know, if he's done all this and tortured everybody only to then abandon the party, that's quite disgraceful. Nothing uh, we wouldn't have suspected or expected from him, but what a horrible reality that he has dragged everyone through the mud uh, on this particular, on all these bills, but especially the, the voting rights bill, which he actually authored, um, and only to see it die today, a miserable death. Uh, and there's a good conversation certainly to be had about how the Democrats square this away. You know, why are they doing such a weak job at protecting voting rights? And we'll do that in a future show. 
No, it's just no surprise. I mean, yeah. it seems to me that everybody knows at this point that the Republicans can only win by cheating and gerrymandering and suppressing the vote and all the shenanigans that we know that they've been up to. So no surprise here. No surprise at all. Normally we take a commercial break here, but we're not going to do that tonight. Instead, we're going to bring in our fabulous team of guests. Hi, Jack Bryan, the creator and producer of Active Measures and the uh, producer of The Kremlin Files. Thank you for joining us tonight. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Glad you're here. Uh, Craig Unger, the man who brought us all American Compromise, that terrific book that finally exposed Donald Trump for what he is, a Russian asset. He's joining us tonight as well from Brooklyn. How are you, Craig? I'm doing well, thanks. Great to be here. It's great to have you back on the show. So the reason we decided to do tonight, Chen, was, you know, there's a... A sense from me, at least from Heidi, from uh, a lot of people who are watching this space as carefully as we all are, that the tide has changed on Trump Russia, that people are beginning to pay a little bit more attention to the original people involved in the Trump Russia set of crimes, which I believe were a set of crimes. Certainly, a lot of people have discounted that over time, but you know, it's hard to avoid. So let's take a look at uh, just this week and see if we can catch up everyone on where we're at. So on Monday, Christopher Steele appears on not ABC News, it was on Hulu, but it was conducted by George Stephanopoulos in his first big interview where he really spelt out why he still stands by the dossier, that he really believes in the dossier, and that there is a not a shred of uh, anything in it in the, and in the Mueller report, which would discredit uh, anything in the dossier. So that was a particularly important move, I thought. I mean, it's not that Christopher Steele hasn't indicated to everyone before that he's stood by it. But the fact that it was happening the night before Bannon was found to be in contempt of Congress, which was happened yesterday, or that same day that Bannon was found in contempt of Congress by the least the committee in the investigating January 6th, we had that uh, Derek Pascas homes were raided. And then today we had the stuff going on about Zuckerberg, which is all tied to Cambridge Analytica. And finally, uh, we'll see tomorrow if Bannon gets fully referred to the DOJ by the full house. So it's quite a week. You know, when you look at all these characters, these are all prime characters all villains, well, not Christopher Steele, but most of them, the other three are villains in the story of Trump Russia. So let me start off with you, Jack, because you're in Hollywood, you know how to make these things dramatic. You know, are we seeing a, a takedown of Trump Russia? I think that we are to an extent. I think we're certainly seeing a lot of um, uh, unleft things sort of coming to bear, right? So right. how far that goes, though, I, I'm not guessing anymore. You know, <laughs> I when um, the Mueller interview in Congress happened, uh, testimony, that was sort of the first time where I was like, oh, you know what? I feel like I don't have a sense of what is going to be coming out and where this is going. Yeah. And, so, you know, I think that there is almost certainly more that's going to happen just because from what we have right now, I mean, the arrests that have happened, the it seems unlikely that a raid of a house is going to be the last thing that happens. Right. Um, but I, I'm also I have to balance that out with being concerned that I, I do see signs from the Biden administration that they are sort of looking to move on. Right. Uh, and I don't right. feel like I have a great sense of how much of this is coming from the administration, how much of this is coming from the Justice Department, mm -hmm. um, and how much of this is just investigations that were ongoing that were not allowed to proceed, but that are now. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that, you know, even at this point in the uh, Biden administration, I don't feel like we have a firm footing on that. My vague sense of it, and take this for what it's worth, is that it's going to kind of depend a little bit on January 6th. That the mm -hmm. more that that unravels, the more it will incentivize the Justice Department, the more it will sort of allow people to say, well, let's actually take a look at this. Like, you know, there's no scenario where things are crazier than a bunch of wilded out QAnon supporters raiding the Capitol to stop 
uh, their democratic process. Well, I think you make a really good point. I think, you know, ultimately, you know, it's not up to the Biden administration completely. Even if Biden wants to move away and not look back or whatever, you know, lines they're, they're using all the time, the reality of it is they are sensitive to public opinion. And the more we see the outrage around January 6th building, the more people are going to be demanding justice. And then the more we're going to have to look back at this whole story and say, you know, this smelled bad from the very beginning. And we should be, have done something at the very start of this and not waited until now. Craig, what's your take? Do you think that this is a, a, the start of the bringing down of Trump Russia? Well, let me just say, I think Trump Russia is, is sort of a heartbreaker. Yeah. It, it, every time <laughs> you think it's going to burst open, it doesn't happen. Right. And so it's hard to know whether the FBI raid was symbolic or will they follow through. Mm -hmm. Their apostate was an enormously important symbol. Uh, he's a powerful foreign policy actor on behalf of Putin. Mm -hmm. But the house they raided is a place he doesn't go. And yeah. I'm not sure what they would have gotten there if they're trying to get documents that would show he did something to violate sanctions or, or whatever. I don't know any of that. And I balance it with the history of the FBI, which has been compromised again and again and again. And some of this is old news, but you have William Sessions, who was head of the FBI, ended up being the lawyer for Simeon Mogilevich. Uh, you had uh, Louis Free, who was head of the FBI, ended up representing Prevazon. Deripaska gave $560,000 to Bob Dole uh, right. just to get a visa. Yeah. Uh, that, so, they, so he's been doing this for decades. He's mm -hmm. an enormously powerful actor. And the way he works to me is fascinating. When he took, he owns Rusal, which is one of the biggest aluminum companies in the world. When he took over the aluminum industry in Ukraine, think what that means for a minute what is aluminum good for it's good for airplanes among other things mm -hmm. so in other words putin's pal now controls ukraine's airplane industry consider uh what an epic strategic victory that was for putin then Deripaska approaches Mitch McConnell to do the same thing in Kentucky. Fortunately, mm -hmm. it looks like that deal is, is falling through, but that's the kind of thing he does. He was also obviously instrumental in uh, putting up money uh, for Manafort, who helped install Yanukovych in Ukraine. So he's been a powerful political actor all the way. He's also yeah, not I operating. Think, oh, Sorry, go ahead, Jack. No, I just want, wanted to sort of piggyback on what Craig was talking about there, because I think it's important that Deripaska is actually one of the few oligarchs in Russia that sort of his power predates Putin. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he was connected by family to Yeltsin. He was married to his granddaughter-in-law, I believe. I think so, something uh, like that. And in 2009, when Putin wanted to highlight that he was cracking down on the oligarchs and really taking control and not letting this, you know, corruption stuff go on anymore, uh, he tell on very televised, very staged appearance sort of right. reamed Deripaska as a sort of show because everybody. It's a good. It's a good piece of theater that I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah Deripaska so had to show fealty to Putin. Yeah. Deripaska also had some contact with the FBI for some point. Around 2008 or so, mm -hmm. he announced that he would fund for the FBI a hunt uh, to help rescue uh, Bobby Levinson, the legendary right. former FBI officer. And that fell apart. I don't know what really happened to it, but it kind of raises the questions of what relationship have they had over the years. Clearly, the FBI knows a lot about 
the Russian mafia, the oligarchs, and so forth, but they've done so little with it. We can't, it never becomes visible, except their files surface all the time on the internet. So you can mm. see something. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, yeah, Jerry Pasca is also connected to Christopher Steele because when in 2008 or so he was trying, maybe it was later, maybe it was like 2012, he was trying to um, get a visa for the United States. He used Christopher Steele as a go between the FBI and himself. He was actually, you know, Christopher Steele was his employee. So it's interesting that he's connected as recently as that, as, as you know, just before 2016 era, that he's already connected to Christopher Steele back then. I'll just, I just, for me, the most important thing about Deripaska, of course, is as this discussion goes, mm. is his hiring of Manafort. Mm. Deripaska is not only kind of a rich, scary guy, but it was really, you know, I believe he's the link through Manafort helping Russia elect Trump by giving the polling data. As we know, there's plenty of information on this in the Mueller report, um, you know, through go-betweens to get it to Deripaska. But I just think, you know, I mean, he hired Manafort in 2004 to go around and make sure that there were friendly politicians wherever he did business uh, at 10 million a year. And then Manafort works for free for Trump you know, uh, using him as a loss leader to get right with Deripaska, who he owned money to. Mm -hmm. So there's no end of uh, Trump-Russia intrigue with this guy. And our viewers are asking, did we see it coming that Deripaska was going to get raided? Um, I didn't. Uh, Jack, do you want to pick that up? Did, did you see it coming? Uh, I mean, I, I think if you had said, who are five Russians who have a lot of you know, investments in America and are likely to get some asset seized or rate mm. rated during this period, uh, Deripaska would certainly been very high on the list. I mean, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I didn't see this coming in terms of this happening today or even knowing that he actually had those two houses, uh, the one in New York and the one in Washington. I mean, yeah. But a thing like this would be a thing that one would expect if you were hoping that there was going to be more, which I, I certainly am. So I wouldn't say I was expecting it. But I would say I was hoping for something like this. I mean, I'm not expecting yeah. Deripaska to see the inside of an American jail cell. I don't think he's ever coming back here. But, you know, that's probably irrelevant. I think what's more relevant is that they did took some action and it looks like they're doing it in a series of, of events that looks like, you know, at least he's being decloaked. That's a term someone gave me that there is a, a sense that he's no longer going to be operating for Putin anymore, certainly in the sphere of influence in the United States, which may or may not be true. You know, we'll find out. It's certainly Manafort's, uh, you know, not coming back to the picture. It is interesting that Tom Barak is the reason that Manafort found his way to the Trump campaign. He, according to their story, it may be, may be a bit of made up um, narrative there, but they claim that it was Manafort who approached Tom Barak and Tom Barak introduced Manafort to the campaign. Do you guys know much about that uh, piece of the story and whether that is in fact how it happened? Well well, Manafort would have known uh, Trump much, much earlier. Right. He and Roger Stone, they, they dated back to uh, the early the, Reagan era. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 1981. So he wouldn't have been the one who introduced them. And I, I forget the timing on this, unfortunately, but uh, Manafort ended up with a condo in Trump Tower. He did, uh, yeah, we, for many years. And I don't know the uh, year offhand, but, you know, they had to know each other. Roger Stone was, they they were all part of Roy Cohn's coterie. And that goes back to, with Trump to 1976. I mean, that's mm. nearly 50 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, Trump presented himself as very close to the people around Reagan. He was talking about Manafort and Roger Stone. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Right. So this is a bit of made up narrative that they've come up. I think I think I've read it in the might have been the fifth volume of the Senate committee, Intelligence Committee, or it might have been in Mueller itself. But that feels to me like it was an untrue story that they put out there that Tom Barrack was the reason they introduced each other, uh, that he landed right. up on the campaign. Almost unimaginable that Tom Barrack was the guy that, that introduced them. I do think that for, for me, the Barrack, the trouble that he's having lately right now is the thing that's made me most excited in this. Mm-hmm. Because like Andrew mm-hmm. Weisselberg, like Burke, that guy was born to go to prison. Like yes. That guy's job has been, you go to prison <laughs> if we get in the last 30 years. Yes. But I don't think Tom Barrack is looking to go to prison. But he might. He might land up in prison. I mean, certainly if you're looking at what might be next... You know, he's yeah. under investigation I and mean, he could be the next person involved here. You know, I, I get the sense at least they may not be so serious about looking back, but they want to make sure that the UAE, Israel, Saudi Arabia and Russia are aware that they've crossed some lines. So maybe a lot of this is theater in a different way. Maybe it's all sort of intended as counterterrorism more than it is uh, or, you know, counterintelligence uh, rather than it is actually intended to bring people behind bars. But it certainly sends a signal, you know, don't mess with our elections anymore. I'm also intrigued by whether this might have all come down to the meeting between Biden and Putin in Geneva. I'm really wondering if there was some sort of give and take there between the players about some of this. What do you think? Yeah, I really don't have a clue on that. I would be wondering what's going on within SDNY a bit more. Mm. And I guess I'm, you know, one person left out of all this is Rudy Giuliani, who's And again, we know his history with the FBI and we know his recent history. So I kind of start, my immediate response is to, you know, no one's really, I haven't seen a really deep dive on how the FBI, I don't want to do that book. (laughs) But it's a fascinating question. How many people in the Russian mafia were part of Trump and Manafort's circle? It's just astonishing. Well, that that brings up uh, Barrick's first meeting with Deripaska was apparently in 2005. This is all, I did a little Mueller report refresher, and I remember that Barrick met with Deripaska in 2005. There's another reference in the Mueller report that they met again in 2015. And it's very interesting what Jack said, because we do know that Barrick is in a lot of trouble at the moment. So maybe we should be thinking about tying those two together. There could be something... Well, I, mean, that's, I think they might be connected, as you know, as we were suggesting that, in fact, the Manafort is the connection. So if they are connected, it will be through Manafort, and I'm sure they all do good business together. Or maybe they don't, but we'll find out. You know, it's interesting, because there was also a period of time, if I'm not mistaken, that was it Manafort who, or was it Deripaska, who was involved in trying to get Assange an early release from the Ecuadorian embassy? I don't remember the details of this. Can anyone remember it? That he was also involved in that piece of that? No. Okay. Maybe just my imagination. Um, I'll turn it's it's to, quite I'll possible. Turn to the viewers. Yeah. Let's find out what the viewers today. have to say, Heidi. Do they have any other questions you want to throw in there while we're. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I had a thought from, from before, sure. uh, which was sort of getting into the, we were talking about the Chris Steele and the FBI and the sort of weird overlap. Mm-hmm. And it really brought up for me a really important concept that I think that people kind of lose in the midst of this. I think when a lot of people hear the Russians, the Russians are like, oh, this is reminiscent of, you know, conservative, anti, you know, left thing of we don't like these lefties over there. Uh, Whereas really what is happening is kleptocracy. And Mm. what happened over the course of the 80s and early 90s as the sort of Russian mob was flowing into America, and and Craig describes this really wonderfully in his book, is that they started working with the FBI. They started and they were involved in more financial schemes than like hits and things like that. And so as the FBI is building its dossier on all of the heads of the Italian crime family from information they're getting from the Russian mob, 
they're ignoring the Russian mafia. Mm. It's what they call the dirty assets problem, which has recently been called the Whitey Bulger problem. Because right. if you have an informant in a criminal organization, <laughs> you have to allow them to continue to do acts of crime or they're not going to be part of that organization and they're not going to have information to give you. And there is a real dirty assets problem with the Russian mafia and the New York FBI of the 90s and 80s. And a lot of those right. guys end up being key figures in this. It's just right. the cooperation right. deals, right? It's a, these uh, deals with the devil almost. And, yeah. And look at it from the point of view of an agent in the field who notices that two of his former bosses are now on the payroll of the Russian mafia and various mm -hmm. oligarchs. He sees a lot of his friends who are getting jobs uh, working for Trump's security. Is he going to pursue them or is he going to say, look, I'm going to keep my pension. Remember, uh, McCabe lost his pension the, the week before he was supposed to be fully vested. Right. Uh, so they're threatened with all of that. Or they can take a soft landing with Trump security or working, giving security to a Deripaska or so forth. Right. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people like that. And I think there are a lot of people in the FBI who are also angry at that. Mm -hmm. And so far as I know, it's never come to a head. And I'm wondering if that's what's going on. I mean, it's good McCabe finally did get his uh, pension this week, so at least there's something there. But you're right, it does feel like there's a long history of FBI directors and, and on down all finding themselves uh, in pretty cushy positions once they leave the FBI. And, you know, some of them pretty high profile ones. What's your take on Chris Ray, Craig? You know, I am not a specialist on Chris Ray. Mm. I, I, I have no idea what's going on between him and Biden, mm. if anything. Historically, the Democrats really keep their distance, and this is one of those jobs where the Republicans and Democrats play by completely different rules, mm -hmm. right? right? And the Democrats historically have more or less kept their hands off the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover was, you know, director forever, I and mean, I don't think there has been a Democratic director. No, I mean, I, I don't think Ray is. I mean, and Ray, does Ray claim to be a Democrat? I don't know if he really is. The other interesting thing is that Rosenstein, the thing that always struck me about him being in charge of Mueller during that whole investigation is how much he restricted it to just Russia. Now, mm -hmm. subsequently, since he left the Department of Justice, he's now uh, you know working, I think, for NSO as part of what their legal team in the United States, which is not a you know a particularly good look working for a, a Israeli spy tech company, basically defending their invasion of people's private lives. But it's also an indicator, perhaps, of what might have happened inside that investigation because we know today that the alliance that brought us Donald Trump was far broader than just Russia. What we call Trump-Russia is really four countries, maybe five countries coming together. You know, it's, it's potentially Israel, it's Russia, there's the Saudi Arabian flag, but let's say it's the Saudi Arabian and the UAE flag combined into one for our purposes here. And then China. I mean, there's certainly elements that all four of these, five of these countries were actually involved in getting us Trump into the White House in 2016. And that's a pretty um, broad coalition of some of our friends, you know, some of our supposed allies. And so when you look at the way the investigation was done, it was squarely focused or very narrowly focused on just Russia, which meant the other three countries weren't really mentioned in the Mueller report. We only found about them in the Senate intelligence report many years later. Do you think that's why there's so much confusion about what really happened and also so much dismissal about what happened in 2016? I don't know who wants to pick that up. I, well, I, I, yeah. I would add another yeah. element to that, yeah. uh, which is also billionaires, American billionaires. Mm. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I should have said foreign coalition. There are billionaires as <laughs> part of it too. And, and certainly the CNP and many others were involved in-, in uh, I think the way you think about it, maybe uh, in terms of, I think that for me, the Russia side of it was very important and the Russia side of it is disproportionately there. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. 
represented, represented. But I think that the way to think about it is a almost click of billionaires. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of these guys, my understanding is that Mercer and a lot of these dudes, I don't know Mercer specifically, but a lot of these guys met through the Russians through life extension technology investments. Oh, really? So they all want to live forever, right? If you're a billionaire, you want to live forever. And you invest what else could you hope for? Yeah. technology that's going to help you live forever, right. allegedly. Uh, and so a lot of these guys invest in those programs together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that a lot of them kind of met up socially through things like that more than they were like, let's all come together and, you know, make the world the thing we want it to be, that these relationships developed over time. And I think that there are certainly Israelis involved. There are certainly American billionaires involved. There's, and but I think that for me, where Russia stands out is it is the only country of the one that I could think of that basically gets its billionaires to do its service for us. That's why mm-hmm. there was a disproportionate amount of billionaires doing it. Like, mm. If America was doing that, yeah, they could have gotten more people. But because America is very hands off with their billionaire class, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, you know, they were kind of just free agents. Uh, whereas right. Right. Like Deripaska, for example, is doing things to maintain power in his own country. Yeah. In fact, he said mm-hmm. he doesn't see any distance between himself and the state. He always said he's, you know, it's one and the same thing. So if well, his money is, yeah, yeah, certainly. Mm-hmm. And if you know, if he falls out of grace with uh, Putin, he'll lose it all. It's not like he gets yeah. to, you know, there'll be places to hide it. He'll Putin will just take it over. Yeah, to me, to me, one of the key points is that what we really needed was a counterintelligence investigation. Mm. And what we ended up with was a criminal investigation. Right. And if you go back to the week Trump became president, uh, Comey approached him and he was doing a counterintelligence investigation. That was clear. Comey mm. said that when he testified before Congress. Comey, of course, was fired almost immediately. And when Mueller took over, he was mandated with carrying out a counterintelligence investigation. He did not do that. And Rod Rosenstein sort of confined it to being narrowly criminal. The distinction is really important because you can do a lot of things in a covert operation and spying that are technically quite legal. I mean, one example I gave in one of my books was Donald Trump Jr. went to Paris in October 2016, just before the election. Uh, He was paid uh, $50,000 plus to give a speech at a French think tank. Mm. Well, all that's perfectly legal. It turns out, though, that the French think tank was really a Russian front. Trump Jr. was being paid by Russian intelligence. He was given Putin's talking points on what he wanted Trump to do as president in the Middle East. And sure enough, a year later, after he became president, Trump withdrew from Syria and left the Russians in charge. Right. Yeah, I, I, mean, I love that example, Craig, because that was the example where we only knew that even happened because somebody who was involved posted on social media, because that mm-hmm. was the time that Junior disappeared for a few days. I mean, uh, def- I definitely it. see in the... Nothing there is illegal. Yeah, nothing's illegal about it, but still, it's suspicious nevertheless. Sorry, Heidi, do you want to throw any questions from the audience? Well, yeah, I want to, uh, our viewer, High Fidelity... Uh, let us know to answer your question, Zev, that Deripaska's lobbyist, a guy named Adam Waldman, mm-hmm. visited Assange nine times Thank you. <laughs> uh, in approximately 2017. Mm-hmm. So that does confirm what you were saying. It's in my story uh, as well on Deripaska, which I <laughs> cannot remember anymore because it's been so many years since <laughs> we went through right. this research. I was just, that's what I was one. doing, looking yeah. up, looking up here on the side. I was like, that I know this fact. Right. Oh, it's in my story. Okay. So, um, yeah. yes. Time, uh, time uh, crushes our memories, unfortunately. But anything else? We do. Anyone? We do have one really great yeah. question. Did Russia get Trump elected, or this thing we call Trump Russia get mm. Trump elected? 
And again, we know his relationship with Manafort. That's his campaign manager. So that seems to be uh, a pretty good question. Yeah. Jack, do you want to take it first? Yes. Well, I, I guess I would ask a sort of a similar question is like, do we know that steroids got Lance Armstrong across the finish line? <laughs> right. We don't. It's his natural he's ability. He's a talented bicycler. He's a really great athlete. Yeah. He's in great shape. But he used steroids to win. Yeah. And as did Trump, basically. He yeah. used illegal means to win. So at a certain point, the only question is, did he cheat enough to change the score? Then cheating doesn't matter. Yeah, wow. and it and it was so barely a win. I mean, it was so it's such yeah. a tiny win that you know. You, and I, I, it, I don't it, say it, it certainly it looks works. like a performance-enhancing kind of victory. Where the difference is fifty thousand votes, like mm. a, a yeah. thousand things. You know, I'm sure Hillary Clinton could have done five things differently that would have changed the outcome. Mm. But I think the Russians not being involved. Yeah, I think that that loses in more than fifty thousand votes. Right. Yeah. Craig, do you think it was, think it sure. was a, um, a Trump-Russia victory for Trump? Do you think he would have made it over the edge here or well, into I victory think without right. it? And, and it, it's like, um, you know, it's kind of a useless task to go back to Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and recount the votes and interview people and say, what really changed your mind? Or was it <laughs> they wouldn't know. I, I don't think that's practical. So I think it's kind of silly. And Jack's right, I think. And what we did see was cheating on a highly, highly significant scale mm -hmm. in an incredibly close election. I, I really think it was a... You and we're still seeing, crazy. you know, it's not just that. I mean, we're also seeing the, the continuation of these social media disinformation campaigns, which have dominated our news cycles since then. It's not like they've gone away. You know, what Trump-Russia brought us, it was constant, 24-7, barrage of fake news and polarizing disinformation, which, you know, even now with the, the, the anti-vax and the pro-vaccination campaigns or the school boards or the homeschooling, whatever they keep throwing at us, it's all changed the fabric of our political system. And it's all still very much a foreign influenced affair. Like a lot of those, a lot of the skill set around that at least seems to have come originally from these foreign adversaries or allies. And uh, maybe they've been adopted now by local parties, but they still have amplifying effect over our politics, which has created a polarized climate all the way into, into an election now that we still don't, you know, half the country doesn't believe that Joe Biden is the president. You know, I, I think that, I mean, the last project that I did was a documentary for Vice about QAnon. Mm -hmm. uh, I did that with my prison partner, Marley Clements. And I think that one of the things that we found is that by the time of the, the end of the Trump campaign, they basically had all of their systems in place mm -hmm. for disinformation, for bypassing the mainstream media in their mind, and for keeping people that you know were supporting them, supporting them. And I think QAnon was a big part of that. I mean, you have Roger Stone basically making that operation possible mm -hmm. a month after it starts. So basically, QAnon starts on 4chan, it can't work, so it moves to a completely different website called 8chan, owned by different people. So how do you validate this anonymous poster is the same person? Well, you get Roger Stone on a YouTube channel and he interviews a QAnon influencer and the QAnon influencer tells him it moved and he goes, okay, yeah, it sounds right. right. And that's how you convince people. And so, you know, Mike Flynn, uh, give, you know, signing on to a conference for it uh, right after the FBI says it's a terrorist threat. You have to have all of these, and or whether it's Infowars that, you know, uh, uh, Roger Stone was tied into or the Chans, specifically, which, uh, Steve Bannon's tied into mm -hmm. that they have basically systematized and weaponized Americans' impulse to be conspiratorial, which is mm. the core part of our <laughs> our values and systems. Basically, I mean, it yeah. is a really central part to American identity is this a distrust of the outsider, mm -hmm. uh, and that is being weaponized and turned against us in a way that is really dangerous and is a threat to democracy. 
Thank you for spending your time with Narrative. And stay tuned. There's much more to this conversation in our next episode. Narrative is made possible by viewers and listeners like you who join at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Join today and support truly independent journalism. Patreon.com forward slash narrative.